When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Women's History. My name is Hannah Smith, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Chelsea Phillips about her book, Carrying All Before Her, Celebrity Pregnancy and the London Stage, 1689-1800. Chelsea is an associate professor in the theater department at Villanova University. Chelsea, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Uh, So just to uh, get us started here, uh, can you tell listeners a bit about the premise of this project? Sure. So my book is aiming to read the impact of women's reproductive lives back into our history of the 18th century theater. So for the sake of scope, I'm focusing on six celebrity performers because celebrity tends to help make women's experiences more visible to us. Um, And their theatrical careers span from about the late 17th century to the early 19th century. So it's really an attempt to help us see circumstances whose influence on a commercial system was profound and very obvious in in its own time, but has been, um, which easily becomes really invisible to us today. It's also a historical look at what I think is a very familiar phenomenon to us today, which is celebrity pregnancy. Um, And it aims to unpack what that phenomenon meant in the 18th century, um, which similarly to our own time saw the sort of explosion of visual and uh, press culture around celebrities. Um, And what what looking at a a historical view of celebrity pregnancy can tell us about celebrity and about pregnancy today. Um, And then the final thing I'll say is that I I didn't initially set out with this goal in mind, but I think it's a project that has really led me to question and engage with this um, often contentious relationship that we seem to see between economic and reproductive labor uh, today, especially in the U.S. and especially for women working in theater and entertainment. So it's, it's for me, it's brought up a lot of parallels between the historical events of the book and uh, the world that we live in today. Um, how did you come to be interested in this topic? So the short answer, uh, as for I think many projects, is that it has an origin and a footnote. Um, 
And that footnote led to a dissertation, then this book, and then some some future projects that are that are coming up in the next few years. But as I look back, I think that I am always someone who's been really fascinated by the way that performer bodies and character bodies intersect and relate to one another in the in the moment of performance. So um, I've been a performer at various points of my life myself, and I used to do a lot of Shakespeare. So I think there's something about performing parts that you know weren't originally written to be inhabited by uh, women that that uh, first struck a chord with me. And then I've also done research into various aspects of theater history where we're seeing sort of actor bodies and character bodies deliberately um, not matching and what it what it sort of means for the audience and the performer to engage in that kind of performance. So when I stumbled across my first story of a performing pregnant woman in the 18th century, it really resonated with some existing interests, but in ways that it had never occurred to me to think about. Um, it also took me into uh, a new area of study, the 18th century, which I knew almost nothing about. So that was quite a that was quite a journey. Uh, but when I got into it, I found the 18th century is such a fascinating time period for women's history. And I'm I'm looking specifically in Britain, so that's obviously where where most of my knowledge is. But um, because women are entering into public life and public professions in ways that they haven't necessarily done so previously or that haven't been as visible to us because, again, of these sort of new media technologies that come into play in the 18th century. So there are a lot of women in, so obviously women are taking to the stage for the first time in the late 17th century during the Restoration, and um, they're also becoming playwrights and novelists and poets. They're philosophers. They're writing about medical um medical um, uh, life and and uh, systems, particularly midwifery. And they're commenting on political and social issues in ways that um, that that feel very modern and also that feel um, a bit unprecedented both sort of in their time and and to us. So anyway, the footnote I found was in the epilogue to an article on Sarah Siddons written by Ellen Duncan. and uh, from that I, I sort of put together that it would mean that Sarah Siddons was performing Lady Macbeth in Macbeth while she was pregnant. And I thought that was about the most interesting, perhaps disturbing thing I'd ever really contemplated. And uh, so from that grew initially a conference paper. And then I started hunting for other women who'd also performed while pregnant, discovered that this was actually very common. Um, and and from there, I chose seven women to focus on for my dissertation. The book has six women in it. And uh, and then, you know, it, it sort of unravels from there. Great. Um, so as you mentioned, you do cover several actresses whose lives and careers span the 18th century. Uh, can you give us a brief sense of each of these women and how and why you selected them for the project? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, so I picked these six women um, in, a, in a sort of global sense because they do span the time period. So I'm working in what we often call the long 18th century. And depending on the person and the project, uh, the long 18th century can mean a lot of different things. For me, it, uh, it's, it's bounded by the, that time period that's in the title of the book. So 1689 to 1800. And um, uh, so I, want, I wanted women who were as reflective as a bro- of, of as broad a a time period within the long 18th century as I could get. And I had certain criteria. So they had to be celebrities. They had to be widely known, widely recognized. They had to have some kind of recognizable public persona, something that, uh, that, uh, that made them celebrities and made them recognizable and distinct from their compatriots. 
Um, and they had to have, of course, a sufficient archive of material around them um, that I could that I could dig into and and make some um, legitimate conclusions and claims about their experiences. So quickly, I'll run through them. The earliest woman is a woman known as Susanna Montverbruggen. She was called the female Proteus in acting for her ability to transform herself into a wide variety of comic types. So everything from, you know, a a a comic uh, a peasant woman to a highborn lady to a swaggering soldier character to um, a you know a, a nerdy lawyer kind of character. She she was sort of uh, endless endlessly transformative is is a is a thing I think of when I think of her. And I argue that during her she had uh, four pregnancies in four years, all at the same time of year in the early 1690s. And I argue that during that, she ended up um, capitalizing on the sort of comic potential of her pregnancies to develop a new line of business, a new sort of comic specialty in these eccentric character parts. And that in doing so, she ultimately ended up um, bolstering her career through this because it ended up being a specialty that only she uh, possessed. And so playwrights would write specific parts for her that fed into the specialty. And uh, so she ultimately sort of improved and strengthened her career uh, by capitalizing on the comic potential of her pregnant body. In that same first chapter, I talk about uh, the actress Anne Oldfield. And Oldfield, interestingly, inherits a number of parts from Susanna Verbruggen after um, she dies in childbirth. So that's it's actually one way that reproduction really matters for us understanding the history of um, these women's careers. But anyway, so Oldfield starts as a comedian and then makes a transition to playing tragic roles around the time that a lover dies and leaves her pregnant and the single parent of um, a young a young child. So after this lover's death, Oldfield is subject to some really um, upsetting, gross <laughs> uh, attacks. And uh, there's specifically attacks on her character and her sexual reputation. And so I argue that this move into tragedy, coupled with her determination to remain on stage throughout her pregnancy, helped her combat those attack and attacks and preserve and enhance her career. And specifically, I look at a role that she played um, and drama key in a play called The Distressed Mother, which enabled her to perform this sort of really loyal, um, uh, widowed queen character and helped sort of create a counter narrative um, for her own for her own personal circumstance. In the next chapter, I look at two contemporaries, Susanna Sibber and George Ann Bellamy. Sibber, who I personally find one of the most, who I think has one of the most interesting histories in the book, but um, is also perhaps one of the least known figures in the book, makes a move into tragedy during, uh, into performing tragic characters during a pregnancy shortly after her marriage into a really powerful theatrical family, the Sibbers. So Kali Sibber, who's the sort of patriarch of this family, is a very well-known actor. He's a playwright. He's a theater manager. Uh, and his son, Theophilus, is the person that she marries. A few years later, uh, Susanna Sibber's career is disrupted by some very public and very publicized trials for what's known as criminal conversation. So this is this is an adultery trial where her husband is suing her lover for the affair that they're having. So in this trial, it's revealed that she's now pregnant with uh, with the lover's child. It's revealed that the lover is a married man. 
um, and that and that they have been uh, sort of living together um, with her husband's consent. So these trials disrupt her career for a bit, but they also expose her husband as this sort of terribly abusive, manipulative, uh, cruel figure. So she's ultimately able um, to secure a legal separation from her husband and an agreement from the London theater managers to keep him away from uh, any place that she's performing in if she will come back to London and, and resume her career. So they agree to this. She comes back, she resumes her career, and she goes on to be the highest paid actress of her day and a really uh, fantastic sort of last two decades of her career before her death. Bellamy, who's Sibber's rival and contemporary, is the only person in the study who uh, who makes an attempt at sort of controlling the public narrative about herself through life writing, as opposed to simply um, by the roles that she's performing on stage. So Bellamy's career is initially a very successful one. She uh, lives openly with a couple of lovers. She has some children by them. She performs while she's pregnant uh, on some occasions. And for a time, people assume she's married to one of her lovers. And during that uh, relationship, she becomes famous for playing tragic mother characters on stage. So her maternal distress is considered particularly effective. And perhaps that relates somewhat to understanding that she's really a mother offstage as well. So there's sort of a validity to these performed emotions that people are, are assuming is there. But the success really drops off after she leaves this lover. She ends up leaving London for a few years and performing in Dublin and Scotland and some other places. And she, and she also loses her children as part of this. So this tends to sort of belie the uh, call into question the validity of those ex- those performances of maternity in the public mind. And uh, towards the end of her life, she ultimately ends up in prison for debt. Towards the end of her life, she uh, dictates this six-volume <laughs> tell-all memoir to a man named Alexander Bicknell. And, uh, and in this, she's sort of making an attempt to restore her reputation and specifically to, um, to restore that reputation for, um, for being a good mother, being a, uh, and, and being a sort of pseudo wife, uh, uh, and her sort of adherence to this domestic ideal of femininity. And, um, yeah, so she, she leaves us this incredible piece of life writing, uh, that is full of gossip and scandal and, and sensation. The next chapter focuses on Sarah Siddons, and she's by far the most famous person that I'm talking about. Um, She's probably the one figure people will be familiar with if you're not, even if you're not super familiar with this time period. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about her later, so I'll be really brief. And I'll just say that that chapter looks at her last two pregnancies in 1785 and 1794 and the impact they had on her career, especially um, in terms of public reception of her performance of Lady Macbeth, which was her most famous part. And then the last woman in the study is Dorothy Jordan. She was this really beloved and popular comic actress and a royal mistress for 20 years to um, the Duke of Clarence, who later became William IV. She ultimately raised 13 children by three different men while building and maintaining one of the most successful stage careers of the entire century. And this chapter looks mostly at the moment when she leaves a man named Richard Ford, who everybody had assumed she was married to and by whom she has two daughters, for the Duke of Clarence. So this happens in 1791. It triggers a real crisis that um, calls her public reputation into question and and genuinely threatens her career. There are calls for her to be fired and so forth. Um, and some of the fuel that's added to the fire of this crisis is the rumor that she's pregnant and public speculation about who the father is, whether it's Richard Ford, the man she's just left, 
or whether it's the Duke of Clarence, the man she's just started a relationship with. Um, so anyway, there's this real crisis moment in her career, but like the other women in the study, like Anne Oldfield, like Susanna Sibber, she ultimately is able to come back from this crisis and really continue to thrive in her career. So those, those are the women I discuss. Thank you. Um, can you give us a sense now of, uh, what the 18th century theater was like? What was the world that these women were participating in? Oh, sure. I'll, I'll do my best. So um, initially after the restoration, when Charles II comes back into uh, power, of course, uh, the, the theaters are, um, there are two theaters in London that have royal patents. They, uh, and shortly after those theaters begin to operate, Charles gives uh, permission or women begin to take to the stage and women begin to perform parts that were written uh, that were written as women, and this is this is fairly new. It's common on the continent. It's pretty new in England, and um, and uh, this really starts to change playwriting. It changes performing. It changes acting styles. It changes costuming. It changes all kinds of things. So um, by the time we get into the 18th century, the sort of profession of actress is really well established. Um, the theaters are beginning to expand, so they go from very fairly small theaters that are mostly patronized by the upper classes, by nobility, to these very, very large spaces. By the end of the 18th century, we're talking, you know, 3,000 or more seats in a theater space. And we're talking about a space that has become um, very accessible to a huge cross-section of the public population in terms of the price point. So, uh, you know, wealthy people are absolutely there. They're in their boxes, they're on display. But in the upper galleries, you also have their servants, their footmen, their maids, their whoever. Um, you have, uh, so you have the theater as a kind of microcosm of much, not all, but much of the sort of social world of of the 18th century, um, of 18th century London. And while there are more theaters than just the two, so it starts out as two, you get, you know, you sort of have illegal unlicensed performance venues at various points. You have uh, attempts to establish opera houses and other performance venues throughout the 18th century. By the end of the century, you have many more performance venues, but you still have two main royal theaters, and that's Jury Lane and Covent Garden. And those uh, those are the two theaters that the women in my study are working for. So they're the largest. They're the sort of best um, funded. It's it's you you've really made it if you're performing at one of those two theaters. Yeah. Um, yes, I I could say so much more. You let me know if if there's more context that would be helpful. Well, I'm sure uh, more will come up as we as we discuss. Um, so just to get kind of to what I saw as one of the core um, messages in your book, um, how did audiences react to these pregnant women on stage? And how did their pregnancies influence the roles that the actresses performed? Great. So um, audience responses, I think, something really interesting. When I first started looking into this topic, um, I think that a lot of the sources I was looking at, if they discussed pregnancy and the stage, it was very much in the context of um, assumptions that audiences would find pregnancy a little embarrassing, a little indecorous, that they would object to it, that it was distracting, especially to see, say, a pregnant woman performing a young innocent virgin. <laughs> and there certainly are comments that people make sort of snide comments about about this occasionally throughout the century. Um, 
But what I found much more frequently is that people either don't comment at all because it's simply so normal that they're, you know, they don't feel a need to talk about it every time it happens because it's quite common. Um, And that when they do talk about it, it is the negative comments are really only the scratching the barest surface of people's response to it. So um, for example, there's an archive of letters at the Folger Shakespeare Library from this woman named Mary Tickell, or Mary Tickle, as I as I like to say it sometimes. Um, and she is the uh, she is the daughter of one of Drury Lane's uh, owners and managers. She is the sister-in-law of Richard Brinsley Sheridan, who is the who's the other primary owner and manager. Um, she used to be a performer in her own right. She and her sister used to sing together. Um, and her mother is the wardrobe mistress at Drury Lane. So she's like, her family is deeply, deeply involved in the management of the company. And she functions as this kind of unofficial producer slash literary manager for the company. She reads scripts, she makes recommendations, she goes to rehearsal, she bosses people around, she criticizes the scenery, she (laughs) tells her sister which performers are, um, are doing well and who's not. She gives her opinion on who she thinks is the most valuable and how they should be cast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So she writes these really wonderful gossipy letters to her sister about everything that's happening in the theater all the time. And uh, during Sarah Siddons' 1785 pregnancy, uh, Tikel goes to see her perform pretty regularly during this pregnancy. And she discovers at one point that Siddons' pregnancy is most visible from the, uh, the front boxes, sort of facing directly onto the stage, whereas her box is usually on the side. So she's looking at the stage from an angle. And having realized that there's a better view of Siddons' pregnancy from these other boxes, she starts she starts sort of transparently showing up at people's houses who have the boxes of the view that she wants to. And she's like, hey, don't you want to go to the theater tonight? And don't you want to take me with you so that I can see? So she gets really, really curious about what what Siddons looks like pregnant. And this is a woman she knows. This is a woman she sees almost daily at the theater. So it's not like she doesn't know, but she's fascinated by what her body looks like while it's working, while it's performing. And she's specifically interested in what Siddons looks like when she plays the role of Lady Macbeth, because every time Siddons plays Lady Macbeth that fall in this sort of increasingly pregnant state, Tikel is there scheming for a way to get a better view (laughs) of her body. So I think that's really interesting. And I think it, it clues us into the fact that here's this incredibly savvy viewer of theater. Here's an incredibly savvy woman. She's, I mean, and she is vicious about all kinds of people, including Siddons sometimes. So it's not like, it's not like she's uncritical of it, but she's also fascinated by watching Siddons perform under these new um, bodily conditions and um, and I think that tells us something important about what it might have been like specifically for women who themselves were often pregnant or uh, or were childbearing or maybe hope to be pregnant or might expect to be pregnant one day. I think it tells us something about what women in the audience may have found to 
connect to or connect to more deeply or to be curious about when they went to the theater above and beyond um, the theatrical event at hand. Um, so you've already, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think I only answered the first part of a question. No, that's all right. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier when we were discussing each of these women that many of them were unmarried mothers. Um, mm-hmm. And I was especially interested in your discussion of the sexual freedom they either did or did not have. So I was wondering if you could speak about the extent to which they did have some degree of uh, sexual freedom, especially for uh, those women who were unmarried. Sure. So I think I'll uh, the the large caveat I'll throw in is like, well, how how do we know for sure, right? And unfortunately, we don't have a. Um, you know, we don't have like someone's secret diary in which they're telling us everything that we could want to know. But we can know things like what were the sort of legal realities for women. And one thing that is one thing that does make a difference between a married and an unmarried woman throughout the 18th century is uh, is her legal status. So under coverture laws, a married woman sort of subsumes her legal identity to her husband's. Now, there are some exceptions to that. Of course, you might uh, there might be legal protections put in place to protect a woman's income or inheritance or something like that before she gets married. You know, every married couple might approach this differently. So, uh, but legally, she her identity is sort of subsumed to her husband. So that means that he has access to at least uh, you know most of the money that she brings in, most of her earnings, um, her sexual and reproductive labor is considered to be his property. And for unmarried women, there's obviously there's there's plenty of of complicated social things about being an unmarried woman, particularly a sexually active unmarried woman. But one thing that is true is that her reproductive and sexual labor is not the legal property of another person's. And I think that there are moments in these women's lives when I think that they may um be conscious, perhaps they are consciously choosing not to marry because because of those legal realities. So for example, Anne Oldfield, I think is the best example. And uh, she, because she remains unmarried despite two very long-term, from what we can tell, monogamous relationships, at least on her part. And uh, and she has children with these with these men. And you know, that, that might create some pressure to marry, to regularize the union for the sake of inheritance and stuff like that. But she never does it. And, uh, and by doing that, she, she owns her own home. She owns all of her own property. She maintains a separate household from either of these two lovers. So she has her own space that she controls. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that we can understand the appeal of that, particularly in a legal and social, uh, world where her right, where it's very easy for her rights to be infringed and for there to ultimately be very little legal recourse for her to be able to take. So using that, using the success of her theatrical career to create um, a space that is under her control and perhaps also allows her to control her reproductive life um, more than a married woman might be able to is um makes me think that there might be some conscious choice behind it. It's not just a matter of like, oh no, you're an actress. I could never marry you because scandal, <laughs> which might, which might play into it, but perhaps, perhaps the women are, uh, are in favor of that kind of arrangement too sometimes. 
So I think that uh, that setup that you describe with these unmarried women living with the the father of their children, but not being uh, married to them, um, I think it it is really contradictory to most um, people's notion of 18th century social norms. Um, how common do you have a sense of how common this kind of setup was outside of uh, celebrity actresses? Um, how shocking would this have been for your average audience member? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So in terms of how common outside the theater, you know, I think, you know, we're, it's (laughs) to, to use a terrible phrase, it's a man's world very much in the 18th century. And men are to some degree, especially if they're noblemen, they're sort of expected to, at least for a period of their lives, have, sow their wild oats, perhaps have um, mistresses, perhaps even be sure that people know about those mistresses. It's a, it's a, uh, another arena of female celebrity at the time are female courtesans and and uh, sort of famous sex workers, and uh, you know so so to be to be the man who is uh, quote unquote keeping one of those very expensive um, sort of high status courtesans is certainly a social marker for men. Um, so I think it's I think it's not uncommon. There are plenty of men who have mistresses that are sort of not necessarily so famous, or uh, or uh, and for whom they might live in like what seems to be a very normal sort of um, marriage like domestic arrangement. But perhaps they're already married. Perhaps she's already married. Perhaps there's another reason why they can't regularize the union or don't want to. Um, it's it's not uncommon. It's actually. Um, it's actually it's quite common in uh, in Britain at this time, and I believe also in early America, for women to actually be pregnant when they get married, and that's a sort of commonly accepted thing. So I think in some ways it's maybe not as far of a leap as we think it is from um, uh, to to people living slightly outside the sort of uh, religious and legal convention of marriage. And the way that other people perceive them is very much sort of the way in which that setup is is happening. So are people, for all intents and purposes, living in living a married life? They just aren't actually married, which is functionally what you get with um, Dorothy Jordan and the Duke of Clarence. Now, they can't marry because the Royal Marriages Act prevents him from marrying her. But they live together. They have 10 children together. They both contribute to the household. They uh, have a monogamous relationship. He's actually like a stay-at-home dad. She's always like touring places and performing and he's staying home with the kids. So, uh, and when, when their relationship eventually breaks down in 18, around 1811, um, the papers just destroy him for being disloyal to this woman who has lived as his wife for 20 years. And their, you know, their, their circumstance is different in part because everybody knows that it's not legally possible for them to marry. So, so there's a barrier there that's sort of not in either of their control. Um, But I think, I think we see a really wide range of, of domestic and sexual relationships in this period. And they're all complicated and they're all very contingent on the sort of community people are involved in the individual personal circumstances that lead to these arrangements. Um, and it can really shift how they are perceived to your point about sort of how scandalous it might've been for um, onlookers, you know, going to the theater to see a woman with a poor <laughs> sexual reputation or an unmarried woman who's, 
pregnant with an illegitimate child. I don't think that's considered particularly scandalous. Maybe maybe it is for some people, but I think plenty of, you know, young young wealthy women would have would have encountered that kind of thing in the theater. Even uh, even the royal princesses are coming to the theater and they're watching Dorothy Jordan perform with their like illegitimate little niece or nephew. And that's fine. Like no, no one's making a huge deal about that. Um, but there's, there are very clear lines in the sand about socializing with these figures outside of the theater. I think, I think it's when you get into those more sort of personal social spaces that these things tend to matter more as opposed to in the theater itself. So you take the time to imagine the physical symptoms that these women may have experienced at different stages of their pregnancies. And you also talk about uh, embodied experience throughout the book. Um, I was wondering if you could both uh, tell us a bit about how you were able to imagine the bodily experiences of these 18th century women and the role thinking about embodied experiences as a concept played in this project. Yeah, thank you. Um, so one one thing I love about this project is that there's so much that is new and different and um, sort of uh, that we need to take a lot of time to unpack and understand. So these legal realities, these social realities that are very different than the world we live in today. But because it's ultimately a project that centers pregnancy and the pregnant body, it's actually very immediately accessible to us, I think, because we we know what a, we have an idea of what a pregnant body looks like. And a pregnant body today does not look that different than a pregnant body in the 18th century. And I say that with the caveat of how different pregnancy can look on different types of bodies and when it's dressed differently and stuff like that. But but that, that sort of distinctive curve to the body, we can imagine as being the same then as it is now. Um, and when it comes, because pregnancy is a biological process, is not that different today as it was then. Um, you find when when we find accounts of women's experiences while pregnant, or uh, you know, advice manuals or medical manuals that are that are outlining what these experiences are like, we find incredibly familiar symptoms. So breast tenderness, missed periods, uh, morning sickness, faintness heartburn, indigestion, <laughs> GI complaints. You know, we find all of these things that pregnant people today can be like, oh yeah, that happened to me too. So um, for context, I have a 16 week old son. And so I he was born in late November. I, I taught uh, all during the fall semester. And for me, the experience of teaching like a three hour grad seminar in a mask popping up and down, walking around a lot, projecting with this growing <laughs> child. I was like, I'm projecting to a room of 30 people and I'm running out of breath. How are these women performing to 3,000 people with a baby like sitting on their lungs? Or, you know, when Beyonce did that Grammys performance a few years ago with twins, I was like, how is she singing? What is happening? So, um, so I think what's wonderful about it is that because this is a bodily experience, a bodily set of symptoms that we that we can still experience today, there's something very um, familiar about some of these stories. Um, but then, of course, there's there's a whole lot that's unfamiliar. So I so you know I might have the same experience of faintness or a headache or heartburn or something like that 
as an 18th century woman, the way that I approach handling that, the way I understand why that's happening and what it means and whether or not, say, it's a it's a concerning symptom or whether it's a totally normal one. Those are very different because they're shaped by my 21st century medical knowledge and uh, and ability to access medical care, which is very different in the 18th century. So there are things about it that are different, of course, but um, but that's that's sort of one of my favorite things about it is how is how immediately understandable and relatable that experience is. Um, and whenever possible, I try to draw on women's own accounts of their experiences with pregnancy because it can be so different for different women. So, you know, Dorothy Jordan experienced morning sickness. I somehow missed out on that experience um, as a pregnant person. Um you know, Sarah Siddons was always, always went, always looked extremely pregnant from the time she hit six months onwards. People would be like, oh no, her baby's due tomorrow. It's like, no, she's only like five and a half months pregnant. You know, so, so it looks very different on different bodies. People have different experiences. Um, So whenever possible, I try to draw on the women's personal experiences, but when those are absent, when their archive is sort of silent around that, it's great to be able to use our understanding of what pregnancy is and what kind of um, symptoms it creates in the body to to sort of wonder in an informed way of what someone's experience might have been like. While we're thinking about these uh, these pregnant bodies, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about um, the tendency of audiences to sometimes conflate the uh, actress with their role. And especially as you alluded to earlier, uh, Lady Macbeth. Yeah. So (laughs) I could talk about this for five hours. Okay. Um, Yes. So in the, in the writing of the book and the framing of the book, I, I discussed this idea that, that celebrities have multiple bodies. So what I mean by that is that uh, a celebrity has their body, what I call their body natural. So just the body that they're moving around the world and, you know, whether that's a pregnant body or not a pregnant body, they have that body. Then they have um, the character body. So the, the character they're inhabiting. So Lady Macbeth, Queen Catherine and Henry VIII, you know, whatever. And then they have their, uh, their celebrity body, which is sort of the, it's sort of the thing you imagine about a celebrity. So say, uh, say there's a really um, iconic image of a celebrity. Maybe that's the thing that first pops into your mind if you hear their name or you associate them with, um, with a particular kind of role or a particular kind of performance. So there's this sort of celebrity body that is sort of like always with them. It's like the persona they project to the world. Like if they had Instagram, it's like the way they curate their Instagram, right? Then you have their body natural. So you have like sad Ben Affleck or like whatever, you know, the, 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 the body that changes, that can gain weight, lose weight, age, whatever. That's the not sort of like enduring persona that they're trying to project. Um, and then the character body. So I talk about these three different bodies and they use that as a way to try and unpack like audience experience and perception of these women. So, uh, so let's, let's talk about Lady Macbeth. So Sarah Siddons has this really, she has, uh, she's very, she's tall. She's statuesque. She's powerful. She's very muscular. Uh, she's very deep voice. She's imposing. And all of this contributes to the fact that she 
really succeeds when she plays tragic characters. So she plays tragic queens, she plays tragic mothers and wives and uh, characters who get these amazing set piece speeches that just like bring the house down in like tears and applause and all this stuff. And, um, and she, uh, so she has this, she has this persona already. And it's an important part of this persona is the fact that she's a mother on and off the stage. She performs mothers on stage and she is a mother in real life. And she, and she knows that this is part of what makes her a successful, that, that contributes to her successful career. So she does she unabashedly does publicity stunts to uh, to 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 bolster this. So she uh, she famously says that she'll offer to the audience three reasons why she's leaving um, uh, one job for to go to London to a more lucrative position, and and she hypes this in the newspaper for like two weeks before she, the performance, and then she dramatically like pulls back the curtain, and it's her children and. Her three reasons are her three children, and she's also standing there eight and a half months pregnant. So clearly, there's a fourth child on the way. So, um, and she's like, "How dare she's she's like daring the audience to criticize her for going off to London to make more money." And then when she gets to London, she performs a a maternal role opposite her eight year old son Henry, and the theaters puff this performance by being like, "Oh, I was at a rehearsal, and her actual son." was actually crying while she was rehearsing her death scene because her acting is so convincing that her eight-year-old son like actually thought his mother was dying, which is like a horrible thing to do to a child. But, you know, they're, they're using this as a marker of how convincing and immersive her performances are. So she's got this reputation already. And then she plays Lady Macbeth for the first time. And she's not pregnant the first time she plays it, but she does create this sort of sensation. People are like, this is the part she's been born to play. She is Lady Macbeth to some really, to like a really specific degree. So they're blending her body natural and her celebrity body with the character body. They're like, this is the thing that sort of brings them all together. That, uh, that creates the complete synthesis of all aspects of her life is Lady Macbeth. Which is like ironic because Lady Macbeth is not a mother and is like, maybe not a great mother. <laughs> and um, then Siddons gets pregnant in 1785. And people find out about this during the summer when she's out of London on tour. And because she's already so associated with Lady Macbeth, the papers just go nuts on using references to Macbeth to talk about her pregnancy. It is the like it's the weird it's the weirdest thing. I still think it's so weird even though I've been thinking about it for 10 years. So they they say to her bring forth men children only, which is the line from Macbeth. They uh they hope that she has no compunctious visitings of nature, which basically means like we hope you carry the child to term. We hope you don't lose the child. We hope you don't resume your menstrual cycle. Like it's it's such a weird way of doing it. Anyway, so they keep doing it throughout the, the summer and the fall, they keep connecting her pregnancy really explicitly to Lady Macbeth, even when she's not actively performing that character. And then, as I mentioned earlier, Mary Tickell is like obsessed with seeing Siddons, you know, in the best point of view she can get on Siddons' pregnant body anytime she performs Lady Macbeth. And so there's this really fascinating thing that I, I think that this reflects this idea that Siddons was already Lady Macbeth, like the second she stepped into the role, it's like, oh yeah, that's like, 
there's no difference between her and her character means that then when Siddons gets pregnant and plays Lady Macbeth, that, that conflation is still there. So when Siddons plays Lady Macbeth pregnant, Lady Macbeth is pregnant in the play, which is fascinating and changes so much about the story. And so in that chapter, I spend a lot of time unpacking, like, what does it mean for there to be a pregnant Lady Macbeth? And not in like an abstract, she could have a child way, but in a really concrete, like here is a woman who's like a month away from having a baby. Like, what does that do to our perception of the character and of the story? And I truly think that the performances that Siddons did while she was pregnant perpetuated, sort of solidified and um, became the sort of apex of her, of her celebrity and of her association with Lady Macbeth. So I think when people think about her Lady Macbeth, there's this great, <laughs> Charles Lamb complains that it's impossible to talk about Lady Macbeth as a character independently of Siddons' performances. He says, like, we say Lady Macbeth, but all we really mean is Mrs. Siddons playing Lady Macbeth. Like, culturally, that's what we all mean. Like, like she's indivisible from that character. And I think that her, the fact that she performs the character pregnant early on in, in her sort of um, career with that character uh, has a lot to do with that, a lot to do with that solidifying that synthesis between herself and the character. Um, so as I think you alluded to um, a bit just now, uh, you also describe a public intimacy between the audience and these 18th century celebrity actresses. Uh, could you speak about um, any resonances you see between uh, this public intimacy and our 21st century relationship with celebrities? Yeah, absolutely. So public intimacy is a term that comes um, from Joe Roach, uh, specifically his book, It. And um, and it describes this sort of tantalizing sense that we get with a celebrity that they're, they're so close, like we could almost touch them. We feel like we understand who they are as people. We feel like we're like, oh, I know that... Um, you know, uh, I feel like I know like Zendaya's like tastes and I know what she would like to wear. And I, and I know, uh, I feel like I know something about her in this like fundamental way because like I'm so interested in her and I feel like this celebrity is sort of living their life in this public transparent way that allows me to access real genuine knowledge of who they are. Um, but crucially, that that sense that you really know the celebrity has to always be sort of incomplete. Like there always has to be a sense that you're seeing the real person, that you have access to their real life. Um, but they always have to remain inaccessible enough to make you want more and more and more of, of um, their presence and more information about them and stuff like that. So um so for example, Sarah Siddons bringing her children on stage is a great example of public intimacy. Like she's like, let me pull, literally pull back the curtain on my private life and show you this. And that's what it looks like she's doing. But of course she's not. It's like a carefully curated way. I'm sure they were like wearing matching outfits. I'm sure none of them were like covered in jam. Like, you know, she's, she's presenting a very carefully controlled vision of her private life that she's selected for public consumption. And by doing that, she creates the sense of intimacy while preserving some level of privacy. So that's that's sort of what public intimacy is. 
and um, and it's generated both by stage performances, but also by visual culture, you know, images of celebrities that circulate and stuff like that, information about their private lives that gets published. Um, and uh, I'm so sorry, remind, <laughs> remind me of the specific question that you want me to pursue here so I don't go off on a terrible tangent. Oh, no problem. No, um, I think you're, you're, you're answering it. Um, I was just wondering what, um, if you compare that, that public intimacy you discuss in the book with um, what we do today with celebrities. Great. Mm-hmm. Great. So let me, let me, uh, I'll offer an example that I talk about in my conclusion. So um, in 2011, Beyonce was performing at the VMAs and she was pregnant with her first child with Blue Ivy and nobody knew she was pregnant yet. And so she took the opportunity in that performance to reveal her pregnancy. So she's wearing this great sparkly pink blazer. She's like doing her Beyonce thing where she's like, dancing like full out she's super energetic she like drops to the floor she she does all this choreography she sings she's amazing she's Beyonce and then she on at the very end of the song she undoes the button on her blazer she opens it and she rubs her belly and there's this amazing moment you can you can find this very easily online and watch it there's this amazing moment where the whole audience is like silent for a second and then loses their minds and starts screaming because they've understood that that gesture means she's pregnant, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a accessible cultural gesture. She makes everybody understand. She doesn't have to say anything and people, you know, go insane because Beyonce's having a baby. So that's a great example of public intimacy. Okay. She's chosen her moment very carefully. No one's like scooped it. No one's taken it away from her. She's chosen her moment. She's chosen how she's going to do it. And it gives the sense to all of these people watching that she's sharing a really personal secret with them individually, specifically. Right. Um, And that is very much something. I think that's very much something that is like, always true of the way celebrity pregnancy has operated. So she sees advantage to that, whether that advantage is simply being the one to control how the information gets out or whether it's an advantage of like generating further interest in her career or whatever. That is, that is very, very similar to this great story about Dorothy Jordan in the 18th century, which is that she is singing a song. She's, she was a, a very popular singer. So she's singing a song as part of a, as part of a performance called um, that includes the line, like how I wish I had a sweet little baby. So she sings the song and the paper reports that the audience calls for an encore for whatever reason. And Jordan makes this comment in French, but she, she basically says, Oh, well, I can't, I can't make a twin to my last performance, but I can create another child for you. So like, I can't, do it exactly the same way I just did it, but I can repeat the performance. And then she supposedly says, Dr. Ford, who's the father of the man she is currently living with, and who is also, uh, who delivered the last of Queen Charlotte's royal infants. So he's a royal midwife, essentially man midwife. Um, She says, Dr. Ford always told me I would have twins. And you know, whether or not this is true, it's a, it's a story in a newspaper. So who knows how true it is, but this person is imagining that she's sort of cheekily letting the audience know that maybe she's pregnant or maybe she will be pregnant, or it's certainly possible that she's pregnant. She's, she's sort of coyly doing this like 
little wink and a nod to the audience, which is very similar to what Beyonce does. It's this like, okay, okay, my intimate, my 3,000, 1 million intimate best friend fans, here's a little secret just for you. And I think that, uh, so I think that that public intimacy is one way that we can really clearly draw some parallels between 18th century celebrity and celebrity today. Um, So what surprised you the most about doing this research? So I think hands down, the thing that surprised me the most was the discovery that uh, women working in the 18th century theaters received paid maternity leave, that it both makes all the sense in the world. And as uh, an American woman completely blew my mind, (laughs) Um, especially, uh, you know, theater artists who you know, watch who's, you know, who's, who's very aware of how contingent labor always is in, in that field. Um, so yeah, I think that completely blew my mind. And then the realization that beyond that, there are other accommodations that the theaters are consistently engaged in that are designed to make it possible for women to maintain their careers, to make, to, you know, give them job security, um, try and make it as safe as possible for them to keep performing late into their pregnancies. And that ultimately it's, it's that, that's that safety and that preservation of their careers is the really driving concern for behind all of these accommodations, not something like, Oh, well, we couldn't possibly have um, Dorothy Jordan play this like young virginal character just because she's pregnant. Like that's really not the consideration (laughs) at all. (laughs) And so I think that that really, really struck and surprised me. And then um, I would say, Beyond that, um, I think just just how much of the operating conditions, the day-to-day running of the theaters ultimately ended up being impacted by women's reproductive lives. Um, You know, so everything from the, you know, the sort of third string actress who gets an opportunity to uh, make a name for herself because she temporarily steps into a role uh, while another woman is away from the stage giving birth. The way that, um, you know, a rival at the other house. So, you know, Sarah Siddons has gone from Drury Lane. There's this young upstart named Harriet Brunton who tries to like make it big while Siddons is gone. So she doesn't have to compete with her directly. Um, so just all of the ways in which the day to day, like day in, day out management of these companies had to always be thinking about and accommodating women's reproductive lives. Uh, what would you like readers to take away from this book uh, about these women in particular or pregnancy in 18th century London more generally? Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, mostly that this happened, that this happened. It was normal. Uh, people didn't freak out about it. It was, it was considered a normal part of life and that there was no fundamental conflict that was seen between a woman's economic labor in the theaters and their reproductive labor. And in fact, that in many, many cases, we can see the way that these uh, celebrity women in particular were able to use their reproductive labor to heighten their performances, to further their careers, to gain more power, influence, and popularity, as opposed to, um, you know, trying to hide their pregnancies because it's going to damage them in some way. So I think that, I think that these women are fascinating, that they led 
rich, complicated lives that they, that so many of them overcame what could have easily been career or even life ending scandals, bad relationships, and then ultimately had the public platform, the public support and the economic power through their talents, through their abilities to, to come very close to living the lives that they chose and that they wanted in many cases, not, they they weren't they weren't just at the whims of fate they were often very consciously fighting for the kind of life that they wanted and very often succeeding in in achieving it and i think that's remarkable in any time period well chelsea phillips thank you for being on new books in women's history and for this wonderful conversation about carrying all before her it was a pleasure to get to speak with you about your work thank you so much hannah